Is this the most quoted scripture or is it the most misapplied scripture? I don't know. We're going to find out today. My name is Greg O'Neill and I want to welcome you to Choir Talks. It's my weekly podcast. Today we're going to look at Jeremiah 29:11. It's a verse you might have seen written down or heard quoted probably pretty often. It's a verse you might see on a t-shirt, on a coffee mug, or especially maybe on a, um, a plaque or something at somebody's house or office. Uh, it's a verse that might show up on social media. Uh, but it's also been a verse that's been controversial among believers for a while. The controversy around it surrounds its use. Uh, is it being misunderstood? Is it being taken out of context? So I want to explore that a little bit and see what we can learn from it. So here's the verse. Uh, Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. That's an awesome verse. The controversy arises when some read that verse and believe God is planning a prosperous, unharmed future for each of us as individuals. Others push back and say, hey, that promise doesn't apply to us. It's a specific promise to a particular nation uh, during a particular time in history, and it, it really promises nothing for us as individuals today. So I want to look at that verse. Let me just read it again, make sure you got that in mind. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. So what does this verse really mean? Well, like any verse in the Bible, when you just have one single verse to look at, you need to be careful uh, because it needs to be read and understood in context. Um, there's three parts of in context that I think we need to understand, and not really just about this verse, but this is sort of a principle that you should take into account anytime you are uh, learning a scripture. First of all, who was that verse written to and what was going on? Um, what's the historical context or the, who's the audience might be a way to think about that. Uh, and then secondly, what is being said uh, in the surrounding passage, scripture, and what's going on in that chapter of the Bible um, so that you don't just pull the verse completely out of context. You understand it might be in the middle of a paragraph and you need to know what that paragraph is about. And then lastly, this one's a little harder to define, but... Um, it, you need to understand it in light of the overall narrative of the Bible. Um, so the more we read the Scripture, the more we understand this, the big picture view of what the Scripture is presenting to us. And uh, so we need to understand how whatever verse we're looking at fits into that. It's not going to be contrary to the overall message and the other Scriptures that are contained in the Bible. So it's important to read the Bible with those things in mind. So let's take this verse. Who was it written to, to begin with? Who's, who's the audience here? Um, sometimes we say now, the Bible was not written to me, but it was written for me. In other words, each book is written to a specific person or group in a historical context. But because it's God's revelation to humanity uh, through all of history, it is also written for me too, to understand who God is and what his plan is and how I fit in. So again, some people say it this way, it's not written to me, written to somebody else in history. However, it is written for me because as God's child and as someone who is seeking to understand this revelation of God, 
It is there for me to understand. In this case, all right, thinking about this verse specifically, Jeremiah is writing this chapter after Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonian Empire. The audience, he is writing from uh, Jerusalem, but he's writing to the audience of people who were dragged out of their homes and brought in captivity to Babylon. Um, they were exiled and now are almost slaves, perhaps, living in, in Babylonian-occupied territory. They are hurting from the loss of family members and friends who were killed probably in the, in the siege of Jerusalem. Um, they are grieving the loss of that city that they considered so sacred and central to their whole nation. They are uh, grieving the loss of the place of worship, the destruction of the temple, um, which was the place where they could go and experience God's presence. They felt rejected and separated from God. And indeed, they were suffering the consequences of many generations of rebellion from God. But God has not forgotten them. So here's the problem of seeing this verse out of context. It was written to the entire remaining nation of Judah in exile. So it wasn't written to an individual. So I need to be careful that I don't just read myself into it as an individual. I need to be careful in general that I'm not too me-focused when I read the Bible, but I'm really focused on the Bible text and what it is saying rather than just starting with myself and how does it apply to me. Um, And I want to be careful as I say that because I read this Bible every day looking for what God wants to say to me personally. So don't misunderstand me there. Uh, All right, secondly, we want to look at the surrounding verses. What is Jeremiah 29 about? What's going on? Well, it's a letter that God has instructed Jeremiah to write from Jerusalem to these captives. Um, In the letter, he tells them that they're going to be in exile for 70 years. Uh, He tells them to settle in where they are because they're going to be there a long time. He says, marry, plant gardens, build houses. And he tells them to pray for the prosperity of the city where they are which that must be a super hard prayer to pray. Um, They've got to pray for the prosperity of the enemy, the one that took away their entire nation and way of life. Uh, That could be a whole other podcast right there, right? That must have been difficult. Um, These people have 70 years of of captivity in their future. So for many of them, they're going to die there in Babylon and never see the return to Jerusalem. So here's one issue with us reading this verse out of context. The people who were the original audience would, if they would have read this promise the way we might as for uh, ourselves, they might have assumed that they were going to be brought back to Jerusalem soon in their lifetime to prosper. But for most of them, that was not the case. Most of them died over the course of that 70 years. In fact, Jeremiah warns them not to listen to prophets who tell them that they're going back soon uh, because he tells them that their return time is set and it is 70 years. So here's a problem of taking a verse out of context. If you see that promise written on a wall by yourself, you might be tempted to think there's always going to be prosperity for me just around the corner if I, if I wait on God because that's his plan. But in this case, that was not true for the original audience. The message here isn't for their individual prosperity, and it's not right around the corner. It was written to a people who feel like they've lost their God and they are without hope. 
But into that bleakness, God gives them hope in knowing that he is still in control, that he has not abandoned them, even though they're going through consequences, that ultimately he will provide for the Jews to remain a people and to live once again in Jerusalem. So finally, how does this verse jive with the overall narrative of the Bible? Um, I want to push back on those who say, hey, we can't see any applications to ourselves in what we read in the Old Testament because that's just not true. That's not the way the Old Testament is designed. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah, and the word Torah means teaching. And so those five books aren't just uh, giving us historical facts uh, that we need to uh, know they are to be instructive for us. They are to be teaching to help guide us and, and help us to understand who God is, what his purposes in the world are, and how we are to live because of that. They are instruction for many generations to come, and um, that's the way they were understood. So, yeah, we can take away personal understandings from the instructions that we find in the Old Testament. Here's the good news as we look at that that verse again. Here's things that we can believe based on that verse. We don't have to be so separated that we can't um, draw application to ourselves. Here's things that we can learn. First of all, God has a plan. Uh, It may not mean the kind of prosperity uh, that you might hope is around the corner. I mean, if you think about the original disciples, God had a plan for their lives too, but in, in all of their lives ended in execution. So they weren't headed to some glorious prosperity in a worldly sense. But God had a plan, and in that plan, there was joy along the journey for them. Um, God's plan is for us as a church, uh, but it's also for you as a believer to be a part of it. Uh, Jesus said this, and this is clearly a promise I'm about to give you that is to us as his future followers in John chapter 10. He said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's God's plan for you. Maybe not worldly prosperity at the end, but in the journey, he is with us, and there's going to be full life along the way. Uh, His plan is for our good. Romans 8, 28, um, another verse uh, hard to understand out of context maybe, but it, it says of those who love Jesus and who are following him that God is working according to his purposes in their life, and the ultimate end of his plan for each of us is that we would be conformed to the image of his son and that is good uh, this verse Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, teaches us also that, that God is in control it was easy for the early recipients of this letter to feel like that God was not in control that, that he had been overcome by the gods of Babylon but there's assurance in that verse to know that he still is in control, that he had a plan. And even though his plan included uh, an enemy in uh, this uh, godless nation of Babylon, nevertheless, he was at work in the midst of all that, and there was still redemption to come. Which brings me to the final thing that I see in this verse for us. God will not abandon us. Even though his people were faithless, God was faithful And I think that teaching applies to us, uh, and we can take that as individuals too. God does not abandon us. Even when all evidence is to the contrary, God is faithful to his people. And he is at work with a redemptive purpose in mind. 
So here's how that fits in the biblical context. We see that throughout the New Testament also. Here's the end of chapter 8 of Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present or the future or any powers, height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, be encouraged today. The Father is with you. The Father is at work in the world around you. He is in control, and he loves you, and you're not separated from his plan. Uh, Read the Old Testament. Read Jeremiah. Uh, There's so much richness there. Don't be put off by the fact that it's sometimes difficult and uh, sometimes foreign-sounding, but but invest yourself in learning it because it'll make you understand the work of Jesus even more deeply. Have a great week.